0: And it is Jesus who makes this a glorious day. Welcome to this morning's broadcast. Glad you could join us. Today, we continue with the meaning of the locust. Our scripture is centered around Joel chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. What we'll see in this preaching is that when there is spiritual dullness in God's people, everyone, That is, everyone needs to wake up. And now, with this message for today, is our pastor, Robert Elliott.
1: And when you combine a spiritual stupor with a mental and a physical stupor due to alcohol controlling you, it is a very bad combination. And the fact is that alcohol and mind-altering substances are still not friends of sanctification for Christians. The abuse of prescription drugs, the drinking of alcohol, not in moderation, are not friends of being set apart for God's possession and use as a redeemed child of God. They are, in fact, slippery slopes that go downhill fast, downhill fast into compounded sin and personal and family misery. So the first wake-up call went to the elders, the civic religious leaders. The second wake-up call went to all the inhabitants of the land, the garden variety, average following Jewish person. The third wake-up call went to the drunkards, and the fourth wake-up call went to the priests. Verse thirteen. See it there in verse 13, verse thirteen. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and lament, O priests. Wail, O ministers of the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God, for the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Yes, the fourth wake-up call went to the priests. The priests, of course, were the religious go-betweens. They ministered in mediation between the Lord himself and the Lord's covenant people. These men were Jewish Priests ordained and set apart and privileged to offer the law's prescribed animal and non-animal sacrifices on behalf of the people. They offered these sacrifices in prescription to the law on the altars of the temple. And accordingly, these priests were to have clean hands and pure hearts. God expected that. It was only reasonable that these priests would have Clean hands and pure hearts. So you say, Pastor Rob, what does this mean to me today? I'm not Jewish. I think most of us are not Jewish. I'm not Jewish. I don't have a temple. I live in 21st century America. What does this mean to me? Well, I think that what we should take from God historically giving up his wake up call first to the civic religious leaders, and second, to the general population of believers, and then last, to the priests, are these things, three things you should take from this. Number one, that righteous political leaders are to lead the way in the advancement of righteousness in their society. There ought to be no such thing as personal faith being checked at the door of Congress such that godless policy and lawmaking results. We should seek to elect born-again, growing Christian men and women. And then when they are elected, we should pray that they will not check their convictions at the door of Congress or the White House or the Senate and allow godless policy and laws to be made in this land. That's the first takeaway. The second takeaway is that average people like you and me, who know the Lord by faith, average people that we today would call the church, can and should rise above their civic and religious leaders' spiritual apathy. If we have civic political leaders with religious uh, spiritual apathy, we who are the church should rise above their apathy to engage our culture, to stand with the word of God, to do what is right in the sight of God, even if it is the minority position. Average people like you and me who know the Lord by faith, the church, can and should rise above our civic religious leaders who are in a state of spiritual apathy. There ought not to be in any of us an attitude, well, if they don't do anything about it, I certainly can't do anything about it. And third... Any of us who are addicted need to wake up and need to get sober. On Friday nights, there's a brave group of individuals who have become real with their hurts and their hang-ups and their habits, and they come every Friday night to one of the rooms in our church building to celebrate recovery. They are seeking to be sober in their Christianity. The addicted amongst us needs, need to wake up, and we, we need to get sober. We should follow the good examples of the sober peers in the church, the godly sober peers that God has given us to encourage our Sobriety. In today's terms of application, the overall picture here is this. When there is spiritual dullness in God's people, everyone needs to wake up. This includes Christian politicians, Christian church members, and Christian pastors. To say it again, when there is spiritual dullness in God's people, everyone needs to wake up, including Christian politicians, Christian members of churches, and Christian pastors. Everyone needs to wake up. Now, I am well aware that every single redeemed child of God has been made to be a priest unto the Lord in the New Testament. But it would seem reasonable to me to make some kind of a parallel between ancient Jewish priests and modern day Christian pastor teachers. So let's get further into verse verses one to three of our passage. Let's backtrack to verse one and read through verse three again. The word of the Lord that came to Joel, the son of Pethuel, hear this, O elders, and listen, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your days or in your father's days? Tell your sons about it and let your sons tell their sons and let their sons the next generation. Back when Israel was shocked and stunned, by an unparalleled drought and an infestation of locusts, the prophet Joel called the men of the community to tell their sons that they would retain the lessons that ought to be learned by the drought and the locusts. Tell your sons. You see, they watched that, that year, they watched their food supply and their agricultural profits vanish, vaporize. First the crops dried up for a lack of rain and then billions of locusts came and ate the rest of the crops before they could be harvested. And the prophet Joel's question of the nation found in verse 2, has anything like this happened in your days or in the days of your fathers would have been resoundedly answered with a no You see, this plague that God sent was undeniably unique, one of a kind, so very severe, to the point of making it a history-making devastation. Verse 3 tells us that the prophet told them that sons needed to be told about the crop failure of 835 B.C., and grandsons also needed to be told about 1835's disaster, and even great-grandsons needed to be told about the time when the locusts were sent in judgment from God. My research tells me that there are over 80 varieties of locusts. Four varieties of locusts are identified by the prophet Joel in our English Bibles. They are gnawing, swarming, creeping, and stripping, But in the English, that is what they are, gnawing, swarming, creeping, and stripping. But in the Hebrew language, the four varieties are slightly different. There is the shearer locust, the swarmer locust, the lapper locust, and the devourer locust. But any way you slice it, God sent billions of locusts as his judgment and wake-up call to his nation of Jews to smell the coffee, to stop their spiritual apathy, to notice that he was not pleased with their lifestyles. He sent billions of locusts of four different varieties, and they just devastated the land.
0: Thanks, Pastor Rob, for your message today. And now it's time for Youth Talk with Pastor Nicholas Rodgers.
2: Good morning, this is Pastor Nicholas. And today we want to conclude our series on Jesus and stuff. And if you remember, we have been going through the last couple of weeks. We have, first of all, learned that Jesus said it's impossible to both love your stuff and truly love God. Second of all, we learned that if our love for our stuff comes between our devotion to God, we're doing it all wrong. And thirdly, that no matter how much stuff we have or want, it doesn't add any real meaning to our lives. Today we want to talk about us giving Jesus our best and giving him what we have. And we want to talk about a lady who basically gave Jesus all that she had. And if you have your Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 12, at verse 41, says this. Sitting across from the temple area, he watched how the crowd dropped money into the treasury. Many rich people were put in, in large sums. Then a poor widow came and dropped in two tiny coins worth very little. Summoning his disciples, he said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others for they all gave out of their surplus but she gave out of her poverty has put in everything she had and all she had to live on you see as we consider this passage of scripture we first of all see that is again looking at the rich men who had plenty of money they had plenty to give they gave above and beyond they gave so much in their surplus that it didn't even hurt them and we see that even in our culture today as we consider Um, When we think of even like basketball players and actors where these people talk about millions of dollars, like we would talk about a dollar bill. And here it is, it's probably the same type of scenario where we can consider that they had so much money that it didn't even hurt them to give what they were giving to the church. But we see here this lady, the widow, who was very poor, did not have much, that she basically gives all that she can. And it even says that she gave two tiny coins. You see, in our culture today and, and even in our churches, we hear from, even from the pulpit sometimes that, you know, if you give more than this and you give, you give this and you get this in return, you get a blessing and, you know, all these things. And, and the Bible doesn't talk about that. The Bible tells us to give to God and, and to understand that we are given to him because it's already his anyway. And I think too many times, I think that we forget that what we have and what we go going to make a living for is already his. I think too many times we think that it is ours, but in reality, it doesn't belong to us. It belongs to him, and we are to give him everything that we have. We are to give him all that we have so that it can be used by him. So I want you to think for a second. I want you to understand as we consider this verse, as we think of verse 41. Jesus did not condemn the rich people at all. He did not tell them that, oh, you're doing wrong or what you do? No, he never condemned them. He never said anything negative, he never said anything, you know, bad. But he said that they, they were able to just continue to drop money because of what they had. As I said, many rich people were putting in large sums of money. But verse 42 changes that and it says, then a poor widow. And I think that, that, that just that one word signifies exactly uh, of how poor this woman truly was. And we need to understand something as well as in, in this century, women were not allowed to work. So whatever she gave was out of what she had, and she had to hope that what she gave, that in somehow through giving and through Christian people that she would get this back. It was not a given that she would get this back, but she understood that I have to give this to God. I have to give this to Him because this belongs to Him. So again, she is very clear to say that it says that summoning His disciples, He said to them, Truly I tell you, this poor widow has put more in the treasury than all others. And the reason is, is that because she put more, is not by the money or the amount, but it's by she gave what she had, the last what she had. I think too many times we see it in our churches where people are treated differently because of what they can do for the church or what they can give for the church. If you know that there's someone in your church who is, you know, who is wealthy, you know, sometimes they they may be given better. Um, you know, a parking space or just we treat them better or we go out our way to make sure they're all right. But the Bible is very clear, as we even see in James, we we talk about favoritism, that we're not supposed to treat someone different because of what they can do or what they can do for the church, but we have to treat everyone the same because God wants to treat everyone with love. He doesn't want us to have favoritism because someone can do something for us. In fact, the Bible talks about even for us as as believers that when we invite people to our home, we're not supposed to expect that that person invites us back into their home, but we should find people who basically who don't have much that we can invite them in our home and we don't even expect them to invite us in their home. You see, I think too many times we as believers and even as the world thinks we put everything about, it's about stuff. It's about accumulating everything that we can get, but that is not what, this principle is teaching us as we have looked over these last couple of weeks, we have looked that we need to make sure that the stuff does not get in the way of our relationship with Jesus Christ. And it's so easy for us to do that. It's so easy for us to allow stuff to consume us and to get in the way and become the priority because stuff brings enjoyment. Stuff brings excitement. You know, all these things come because we get stuff and there are some people who are never satisfied by the stuff they get because they always want more. I want you to imagine for a second and think about different cultures. And you can think of, in, in your culture, where you're at and what, what, what's happening here. But imagine for a second, someone gives you a 55-inch TV. I'm sure you would be thankful. I'm sure you would love that. But then you have someone who comes along and says, you know what? They should have done a little bit better. for you. They should have got you a 70-inch TV. This shows how ungrateful we have become sometimes that we become so ungrateful because we think that we are owed something. We think that, oh, you know, why didn't you give me something bigger or better? We're not satisfied with what God has provided for us. You see, I think one of the most important truths that we can learn about our stuff is the one that the widow already knew. Our stuff is God's, not ours. Everything we have is because of God's grace. If we treat our stuff like it's God's, that is, He is allowing us to benefit from, we will have much more biblical attitude toward our possessions. We won't find ourselves looking for meaning in our stuff or being greedy about wanting more. And we'll be much more inclined to give our stuff to others. You see, God doesn't want us to be hoarders. But if we see someone who is in need, we should help them out. We should give them something that we have if we know that we have an abundance. And let's be honest, a lot of us have an abundance of stuff. You know, we can think about all the different things that we have when, when there are individuals who don't have anything, who are living on the streets, who don't have clothes to put on. You see, God has told us that he will take care of our stuff, of our needs, not our wants. But even in some cases, he gives us our wants. And I think too many times we get comfortable and we think that we owe something from God and. Even in sometimes in our churches, we are taught, if you give this to God, you will be blessed abundantly. But that's not what God is teaching us. He's teaching us that our rewards are not here on this earth, but our rewards are in heaven with him. And we don't just give to just give to say, oh, I want to get a blessing from God. It doesn't work that way. We can't buy a blessing. The blessing is there for us. God has already sent his son to die for us so that we can have a relationship. And when we consider the sacrifice that his son made on a cross for us, what more can we give than to give ourselves and to give up our stuff so that we can be used by him? I hope that as we have gone through this series, I hope it has challenged you to think more of your stuff and how you can help someone in need. Because if we don't search our lives and, and think about all that we consume consumed in our own houses, and look for those in need that we can help, then we've missed the point. Because the Bible is very clear that we must help those in need, help the needy, help the poor, help the widows. We need to be there and we need to understand that God wants us and this is how we
3: show Christian love when we help those in need.
0: And now today's personal God story.
3: Hi, my name is Christopher Cartwright. I was born right here in Nassau in 1989 at Princess Margaret Hospital. For the first seven years or so of my life, I was, uh, what we call an MK, a missionary kid. And later on, a PK, what we call a pastor's kid. Those seven years, three of them in Rumkey, right there in the Bahamas, and the other four in New Hampshire, in the United States, as a missionary kid. I was in a small bubble of believers. Uh, my parents worked for a ministry called His Mansion Ministries. My mom worked with women who experienced some form of abuse, whether it's drug or sexual abuse, and we lived in a large home uh, with myself, my brother, and my parents, and about 15 women who lived upstairs, and we lived downstairs. So my upbringing was unorthodox, to say the least, and my father worked with men who had come off the street, some had been victims of abuse, some had been on drugs, Um, some had just fell into bankruptcy and depression, and they all came to this ministry um, to seek counseling. And they were counseled. They were put to work. They had devotions, and they went through rehabilitation um, and were put into a schedule um, where they had to study the word and learn about the Lord. Um, and so that's that's what the first seven years of my life was. After that, we moved back to the Bahamas. Um, Where I was taken out of that little bubble that I was used to for the first seven years of my life. And I was put into uh, a private school here in Nassau. Um, My parents came back to Calvary Bible Church, which was the church that commissioned them as missionaries in the first place. And the next seven years of my life and beyond was basically living at Calvary Bible Church. Uh, We were there every time the doors were open. My father um, eventually became one of the elders there. And so, although not in the same bubble as the first seven years, I still, uh, was surrounded by and immersed in, uh, the scriptures and other believers, uh, on a weekly basis. And, uh, like most PKs, pastor kids you may have met, um, you know, they say pastors' kids can be some of the, some of the worst kids you know or some of the most two-faced kids you know. And I was one of those. I was one person in school another person at church, um, because, you know, a pastor's kid, you know, he, he has, he's, he's in a constant struggle to be cool, uh, in the eyes of his peers, despite being a pastor's kid. And, uh, peer pressure was certainly something I dealt with in high school and gave in, uh, most of the time throughout most of my high school. Although my friends knew that if they were going to hang out with me or spend the weekend with me, that they were most likely going to have to go to church at some point. Um, and most of them were cool with it. I had some really good friends, but, uh, we would come, you know, they would come and we would go to youth group or we would go to church. Um, but at school, I was a completely different person. And I probably did a terrible job of being a Christian example to them. Um, but being that person, I still knew that this was not a way I could live forever. I knew I had to get serious at some point. Um, and I, I had always had that in the back of my mind that, you know, you can't fool people. Forever, you have to if to get serious. I knew Jesus uh, was someone that demanded either all or nothing. He was not into the lukewarm thing. Um, I had learned that much from youth group. And so, upon graduating from high school in 2007, I did not decide upon a college right away. And both my youth pastor and my older brother and some other friends of mine had went to a Bible school in New York called Word of Life Bible Institute. And so, since I did not have a college to go to yet, I said, "Well, hey, you know, I'll head up there and, you know, kill some time and see." But I, the Lord, had a very different plan for me. Um, up there, I learned more about the about the scriptures. I, we got we got deeper. Um, and not only did I learn that, uh, you know, the Christian life is not just a set of rules, which is basically what I had been living before. Uh, about church attendance and staying away from drugs and sex and being a good boy, but uh, that Jesus was a person that entered history, uh, that came to save souls, that uh, he had left us with his word that he has preserved over the years, and that those scriptures are alive, and they're, 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 they're living, and if you study them, and if you live by them, and if you meditate on them, and if you apply them, uh, then... You will grow in him because before that I had basically, you know, lived a life where I feel many listeners may be living where you placed faith in Jesus. Um, you know, you prayed a prayer back in the day and you, you may have even been sincere. You know, you weren't just afraid of hell. You may have actually placed faith in Jesus, but after that you just kind of continued to live on a life of living rules and you never got deeper. You never got, uh, the meat of the word as it's, as it said. And uh that's what I encountered at Word of Life and I I found out that the, the Christian life was a lot deeper than I had thought and a lot more than um what I had been living. Um on top of that, uh I came I came back home uh with all this knowledge from Bible school, you know, and I was prepared to, you know, get involved in my church, to live wholeheartedly for God and use all the knowledge that I had gained. But as uh, someone said once before, I don't remember who, the head is a long ways away from the heart. And you can know as much as you want about the Bible, um, but if your heart is not seeking after the Lord and to do His will and to know Him better, uh, you're not going to get very far. You're not going to impact many people. You're not going to grow in your faith and uh that was uh that was a lesson i had to learn after bible school and i think many listeners may know of a lot of christians out there that could quote a lot of scripture and could tell you a lot about the bible but are not prepared to love you as a person and to uh, give you uh, show you that same love that you read about that jesus gave people in the scriptures um, to be understanding to accept people for who they are And, uh, I think that's a big problem in our church today. It certainly was a problem in my life and, uh, something that I still deal with up until today. Um, but today I still attend Calvary Bible church. Um, I'm still growing, growing in my faith. I'm trying to know the Lord better, try to worship him in all aspects, uh, not just my mind, but, uh in what I do and how I live in everything that I do in my thought life and in my actions. And, uh, I would encourage you, as a listener, that if you have not placed faith in Jesus Christ, to not um, look at uh, your neighbor as your friend, the Christian you know uh, from that sports team you're on, or for, or you know anybody that says they're Christian, not to look at them as example, but look at Christ. To um, study the Scripture for yourselves, uh, get to know Him, uh, actively seek Him, and uh, I would encourage you to place faith in his finished work uh, on the cross as your only way to heaven. And uh, if you are a Christian, if you've made that decision, but um, like a person I really look up to, a speaker named Ravi Zacharias might say, Christianity may not have worked out for you. I would I would invite you to uh, maybe look at the scriptures and not people and not uh, maybe Christianity isn't what you thought. Um, maybe you need to... Uh, Take a second look at what you're doing. And uh, and I would encourage you to do that. And I would encourage you to visit Calvary Bible Church and to seek out a pastor and, and talk to them if you have questions. And thank you for listening. Uh, my name is Christopher Gottwright, and that is my testimony.
0: You've been listening to Echoes of Calvary, a radio ministry of Calvary Bible Church, Nassau, Bahamas. Our morning worship services are at 8 a.m. and 11 a.m. in our sanctuary located on Collins Avenue. We encourage you to join us. Feel free to write us at eocradio at gmail.com. That's eocradio at gmail.com or P.O. Box N1684. Nassau Bahamas and remember everyone needs a savior.